Good morning. How are you this morning? Everybody doing well? Good, good. This past week I read an uh, introduction to an article that I believe is relevant for the topic of today, and in it it highlights many of the points that I've tried to make throughout this series on the moral decline of our nation. The introduction goes like this. It says, an American child is abused or neglected every 13 seconds, is born to an unmarried mother every 26 seconds, is born into poverty every 30 seconds, is born to a teen mother every 59 seconds, is arrested for a violent crime every five minutes, and is killed by guns every two hours. Every day, 1,200 children run away from home, 2,900 see their parents divorce, 100,000 children are homeless, and 1,200,000 latchkey children come home to houses in which there is a gun. The crisis of children having children has turned into the tragedy of children killing children as too many of our young mimic the adult conduct that they see. Never have we witnessed the threats to family stability posed by soaring out-of-wedlock birth rates and an epidemic of teen births among black, brown, white, rich, and poor alike. Today, two out of every three black babies and one out of every five white babies are born to unmarried mothers. And if it's wrong for a 13-year-old inner-city girl to have a baby without the benefit of marriage, it is certainly wrong for rich celebrities to do so also. Never has America permitted children to have such easy access to and rely upon guns and gangs rather than parents and neighbors, community institutions and religious congregations for protection and for love. Never have we pushed so many children into the tumultuous sea of life without the life vests of nurturing families and communities, without a sense of right and wrong, enough adult role models they can emulate, and without challenged minds, job prospects, or hope. And never have we exposed children so early and relentlessly to cultural messages glamorizing violence, sex, possession, alcohol, and tobacco. It is time for all parents and adults to, step up, to stop our hypocrisy and to break the code of silence about the breakdown of spiritual values and parental and community responsibility to nurture and protect our children. While we decry rising youth violence, drug use, and antisocial behavior, the plain truth is that we adults have preached moral and family values we have not practiced consistently in our homes, religious congregations, communities, and national life. In light of our topic for this morning, I want to pick out a few of the highlights from that particular introduction. The article mentions that a child is born to an unmarried mother every 26 seconds, that a child is born to a teen mother every 59 seconds, soaring out of wedlock birth rates and an epidemic of teen births among all races. For the past 25 years, our nation has sown the seeds of, quote, freedom of expression and freedom of lifestyle and thereby we begin to reap the consequences of the seeds which we have sown over the past 25 years. Pornography, as we saw in one of our sessions earlier, has risen to epidemic proportions from the standpoint that in 1993, $885 million was spent in the pornography industry. The sexual fiction of yesterday has become the reality of today. Magazines, videos, Cable, advertising, even primetime television advocate unmarried couples living together, extramarital affairs, homosexuality, and infidelity of all sorts. Our education system from the elementary school up through the university level 
has decided to pass out contraceptives in an effort to somehow control or minimize the damage. There's much confusion in our society about how to deal with the consequences. And ironically, many of God's people have added to the confusion by openly endorsing popular immoral activities. The question that we have to ask ourselves, and it's a question that's addressed, is, is there any hope as we consider the rapid decline of sexual morals in our country? Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Is there any place we can turn to for counsel, for advice, for encouragement? And the answer is, absolutely, there's a place to turn. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 119, because the question that is asked is the same question that we're going to address. And in Psalm 119, starting with verse 9, the, you know what's amazing to me is that somehow or another we think, and I think a lot of it has to do with our own arrogance and pride, that we think that our society is different than any other society that has ever existed on the face of the earth. As if somehow we are dealing with problems that are so new, so revolutionary, so radical, so different, that nobody else in the history of the world has ever had to deal with what we have to deal with. And yet, I read Psalm 119 and look at verse 9. The psalmist asks this question. And basically, in the Czech living version, it would be something like this. Man, you know how hard it is to be sexually pure in the culture in which we live? But the Word of God says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? That's a valid question. It's timeless because it comes from the timeless Word of God. It's timeless. It's relevant for today. How can a young man, how can any of us keep our way pure before God in a society that is hell-bent on sexual freedom of expression of all sorts? Good question. What's the answer? By keeping it according to the Word of God. By taking heed to the Word of God. How can a young man, how can a young woman, how can an older person, how can any of us remain pure in a culture that emphasizes sexual freedom of expression? God says, very simple, by taking heed according to the Word of God. He says, by taking heed to the Word of God, and with all my heart I have sought Thee. Do not let me wander from Thy commandments. Thy Word I have treasured in my heart so that I don't sin against You. Blessed art Thou, O Lord, teach me Thy statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinance of Thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of Thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on Thy precepts and regard Thy ways. I shall delight in Thy statutes and I will not forget Your Word. What's the answer? The psalmist gives it very clearly. It's to have a high value of Scripture. Take heed of the Word of God. I need to be honest about some things and I want to be up front and I might as well just get it right off the bat here and deal with it. We need to be honest about what the Bible teaches. We need to stop interpreting the Bible in defense of our own prejudices, in defense of our own lifestyles, and in an effort to please people around us. We need to stop interpreting the Bible and perverting the true meaning of the text in an effort somehow to accommodate our lifestyle. 
This is what adds to the confusion of our day. When God's people, and I'm talking about God's people, people that know the Word of God, that have come to know God personally by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm talking about people who put themselves in the category of being a child of God, of being people who love God and obey His commandments and want to be obedient to what God has to say. I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about people that should know better, I'm talking about us who accommodate our behavior and lifestyle and try to get God to endorse it and validate it. We need to be honest about what the Bible teaches because the psalmist answers very clearly. There's only one way that we'll remain pure before God and that's by taking heed to the Word of God. With all of his heart, he says, I took heed to your Word. Don't let me go off to the side. Don't let me stray away. Don't let me get caught up in the arguments and the philosophy and the teachings of the day and the culture in which we live. Don't let me get caught up in all the rationalization around me. Just keep me, just keep me right on the Word of God. We need to be people who stop interpreting the Bible in light of how we live and allow God to tell us how to live. It doesn't help to know where you're going until you know where you are. There was a great illustration of this several years ago. Friends of ours, Jeff and Stacy Kemp, who had played for the Rams, got traded to the 49ers. And they were living in San Francisco, and they invited us up for, one, uh, for a weekend. We went and spent some time with them. We went to the game. After the game, we were driving around. Now, they had just moved there not too long ago and weren't real familiar with the streets of San Francisco, where they were going, what was going on. And so we got in the car and we drove and we were going to a place where they wanted to take us for dinner. And you know, guys, you know that if you ever get lost, it's not biblical to stop and ask for directions. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I started, now we hadn't been there, and we've been a few times, but I'm not that familiar with the streets either. But when you see the same building over and over again, it's kind of like a giveaway that something's up. And we're driving around in circles until finally Stacy said to Jeff, Jeff, we're lost, aren't we? And he said, no. <laughs> well, and then he goes, well, yeah, I, have we been down the street before? And it's like, and we're, yeah, we've been down the street before. And here's her solution. Here's her suggestion. She said, Jeff, if you drive over to the corner of such and such, then I'll know how to get to the restaurant from there. See, now, a, a guy wouldn't think like that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, if we drive to the corner of such and such, then you'll know how to get to the restaurant from there. All right? I guess that makes sense, because we drove to the corner of such and such, and then she just went, make a left here, make a right there, make a left here, and there we are. <laughs> now... I don't say that I understand all this. I'm just illustrating something. It's kind of like, and you know who designed those little things at the mall then? Right? What, what's the, what I'm talking about? You, you want to go to a certain store? What do you got to look for? No, you got to look for the you are here. That's right. You got to look for the you are here sticker on that thing. Now, you know a woman designed that. And, and, and it works. That's why they, that she designed it. It works. But you go and you go, okay, where are we? We are, we got to get to the you are here, and then we know where we're going, and then we know where to go from there. You see, this is, the point is, is simple. God says that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The word of God says, Chuck, you're not too bright because we've seen you drive. You know? And, and here's what you need to understand. You needed to find out where you are before 
I can take you where you need to go. The question is, as you ask yourself, what do you, today, at this moment in time, what do you believe is acceptable sexual behavior? So you need to know where you are now. Because then when you find out what the Bible teaches, then you'll know where to go. You'll know where God wants to take you. Because we have to be honest in our response to what the Bible teaches. Understanding what the Bible teaches and then not being honest in the response to what the Bible teaches is nothing more than head knowledge and it doesn't change the way that we live. It's not applicable to our life. Therefore, the Bible becomes irrelevant because we don't see any change taking place because of the knowledge that we have. We haven't applied it. We have to be honest about issues which the Bible deals directly. We need to take heed to the Word of God about issues which the Bible does not directly speak, then we have to be honest with our conscience and our motives because not only are we under the teaching of Scripture, but we're also under the implications of the teaching of Scripture. And it's important to understand that the Bible is not defined by the culture or lack of moral trends in which we find ourselves today. The Bible sheds light on our culture, exposing it for what it is, either right or wrong in the sight of God. We need to stop trying to use the Bible to validate the culture in which we live. The Bible exposes the culture for what it is. And if it's wrong before God, it needs to change. And if it's right before God, it is given the validation and the affirmation of God. And we're given the stamp of approval. Because we need to either be moving closer to God in our walk, because if we are not, we're moving further away from Him. If we begin thinking somehow that the Bible is not relevant for today or that it's somehow puritanical, that it's legalistic, it simply doesn't fit into today's so-called age of enlightenment, then we will soon stop relying on the Scriptures even in regards to salvation. As God's people, we must not compromise the truth of God's Word nor dilute it in a well-intended but what I believe is a misguided approach to so-called reach people. It's the truth that sets people free. It's the Word of God that sets people free. It's the Word of God that exposes wrong behavior. And it's the Word of God that also gives correction and direction as to which way to go in the future. Now, we're ready to ask and answer the question. And the question is simply this. What are the sexual morals that are clearly taught in the Bible. Next time, we'll get into all these gray areas. And believe it or not, there are a lot of gray areas. When you'll talk about stuff like dating, our thought life, the things that we see, the things that we look at. We need to even talk about things like masturbation, which is a gray area in Christendom. We need to deal with all that, and we're going to deal with it, and we're going to deal with it in light of what the Bible teaches. And we'll also deal with how can we be, practically speaking, how can we keep ourselves pure before God in these areas of our life. So the first thing that we need to look at is, what are the sexual morals that are clearly taught in the Bible? The first one has to do with extramarital sex. In the New Testament, there's two basic words used to describe sexual immorality. The first one is fornication, which comes from the Greek word porneia, where we get our English word pornography. The second is adultery. Adultery refers to illicit sexual relationships between a married person and any person other than his or her marriage partner. 
Fornication is a broader topic and it includes premarital as well as extramarital sexual relationships. So let's start with extramarital sex. One of the oldest directives that's found in Scripture is found in Exodus 20, verse 14. And it is included in what has commonly been referred to as the Ten Commandments of God. We read this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's a commandment that's similar to it. And the last one says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the wonderful thing about things that are explicitly taught in the Bible, that are clearly taught, you can't dance around that one. I don't care how good you are at it. I don't know how in the world anybody can dance around, Thou shalt not commit adultery. All right? Well, ah, that's Old Testament. So, and then we've got to jump to the New Testament. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 19. Mark 10, verse 19. Okay? You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus said, you know them. Have you not read? Have you not heard? Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, they understood that thou shalt not commit adultery. And to illustrate it, turn to the Gospel of John and look at chapter 8. Thou shalt not commit adultery. John chapter 8. Starting with verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and his finger rode on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he rode on the ground. And when they had heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Ah, and this is where some would stop and say, See that? Let's stop right here. Let's take it no further. See, Jesus didn't condemn her. Oh, wait. See, we have a way of doing that, don't we? We have a way of stopping to try to illustrate a point that we want to make, not necessarily a point that God wants to make. So we juggle and dance and try to find a verse or a passage or just something that would help validate our behavior. But she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Was he validating her behavior? Was he saying what she was doing was okay? He said, hey, go and sin no more. The mercy of God. I'm giving you a chance to repent. 
I'm giving you a chance to confess your sin. I'm giving you a chance to admit what you were doing was wrong and to go and sin no more. Don't do it again. You don't think that woman was scared to death? You don't think that woman thought, I'm dead? You don't think when those guys grabbed her and they set her up and they caught her and they dragged her out of there, you don't think she thought she was dead meat? She knew it. But the mercy of God gave her a reprieve. But it didn't validate what she did. Go and sin no more. Different than what she was doing was okay. You see, these statements, go and sin no more, are direct, are abrupt, are dogmatic, are judgmental, are harsh, are non-loving, according to those who disagree with the Word of God. But they're true. The Bible clearly teaches that extramarital sex is a sin. And, thank God, there are many Christians, as well as non-Christians, that still find such action offensive. Now... Let's look at the second area clearly taught in the Bible. And the scriptures relating to adultery, adultery equally apply to premarital sex. And here's where we get into all kind of fun. Many in our society, while we agree that extramarital sex constitutes a violation of marital vows and of trust between a husband and a wife, are much more liberal in their views of premarital sex or sex outside of the bounds of marriage because premarital sex assumes the position that all those who have sex outside of marriage someday intend to marry, and that's not true. So let's just not limit it to premarital sex. Let's, let's call it what it is, all sex outside of marriage. Whether you ever intend to get married or not isn't the issue. The issue is the behavior that you are committing. So it gets real confusing. Why? What are some of the common arguments? What are some of the common arguments that people use for having sex outside of marriage? We can't afford to live separately, but we aren't ready to get married, so we have come up with an economic solution to our dilemma. We can have our cake and eat it too, right? That's one. I've heard that. You've heard that. What other one have you heard? We love each other. At this moment in time, we love each other. We are committed to each other. We are going eventually, someday, to get married. That's what he tells me over and over again. Right? He's my life partner. I'm monogamous. Just to show you how distorted this is, I was at a baseball game yesterday. I'm standing there, I'm talking to this, a guy that just fascinates me by his philosophy of life. And every time he sees me, he wants to share with me everything that he thinks that he knows. And then on top of all of it, I had to be standing there wearing a pink bracelet that says Promise Keepers on me. And I'm trying to understand why a bunch of guys, 50,000 guys, will wear pink bracelets for two days. I think it's part of the humbling process. So I'm standing there, and he says, were you in the hospital? <laughs> no, I was at this conference, and here we go. Oh, and he goes on, and he starts talking. And he brings up Rush Limbaugh, because he loves Rush Limbaugh. And he says, my wife threw it in my face that Rush Limbaugh is now living with his girlfriend, and he's a hypocrite. 
say, well, it depends. If Rush Limbaugh ever advocated, you know, that people shouldn't live together, that people shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, then yeah, he's a hypocrite. That would be correct. But I don't know whether he's ever advocated that or not, or if people assume that's the position that he takes without him ever really expanding on what that position is. And he goes, you know, I said, let me ask you a question. What is a monogamous relationship? Now, he's kind of going, monogamous is a big word to throw out at this guy. So <laughs> I'm trying to break it down. And, you know, I mean, what does that mean? Well, see, what happens is people, it means, well, that you just have sex with one person. But what it really means is that you have sex with one person at a time. Right? Because in two months, if this doesn't work out, you get a new relationship and you do it again. And in three months, if that one doesn't work out, you get a new relationship, you do it again. And this one might last six months. But you're monogamous, you're faithful for three months, for six months, for 12 months. And if you do it over the course of a year, you've had sex with 20 people. And you believe you're monogamous. You believe you're faithful. You believe you're committed. See, God's not blown away by any of this smoke. That's why we're dealing with the tragedy of the loss of virginity for countless teenagers, the dramatic increase in teen birth rate and abortion and pregnancy, the, the epidemic numbers of sexually transmitted disease in all age groups, with increasing social pressure and explicit stimulation from TV and books and movies and advertising, we live in a constant barrage of sexual excitement. And you add to this concept that sex outside of marriage is not sin and the result is confused standards and destroyed lives. Today's society opposes premarital sex primarily on the grounds of pregnancy and disease, not on any particular moral ground. And it's at this point where the makings for disaster begin because you see, once you consider a behavior on the basis of the consequences alone, then all suggested solutions will be aimed at eliminating the consequences only and fail to do with the, deal with the root issue, which is in the case of extramarital and premarital sex, it is the position of God and the Word of God that it's wrong behavior. See, now you can understand why the society in which we live in basically sees sex education as somehow or another an opportunity or a vain attempt to eliminate the consequences of the behavior. See, now you can understand why educators believe we need to pass out condoms in school. Why we need to educate our children. That's why you need to understand that people in authority that do not have a biblical frame of reference and do not understand morals, do not understand what is right or wrong, will advocate things to deal with the symptom and not the root. We need to understand the battle that we're up against. We need to understand why a Surgeon General for the United States of America would be quoted as saying, we taught teens what to do in the front of a car, now it's time to teach them what to do in the back seat. We need to understand why Jocelyn Elders would be quoted as saying, I tell girls every time they go out on a date to put a condom in their purse. We need to understand why she would be quoted as saying, if the religious community would stop trying to moralize these issues, a lot of progress could be made. You see what I'm talking about? You see what's going on around us? See, it's not hard to understand then why Calvin Klein ads. There was a great article in the paper not long ago about Calvin Klein and in this biography that came out. Readers will smirk over the just published biography of the man who has dominated the fashion industry. 
bisexuality, bowls of cocaine and quaaludes on one side of his bed, porno videos on the other, a stint at a drug rehab center in 1988. There's a symmetry between his private life and his marketing techniques. That's why he uses flesh and underwear and innuendo, sexual innuendo to sell jeans and underwear and fragrances. He has contributed to the decline, the moral decline of our country. We need to understand why people in authority that don't hold a high biblical view of what God says is morally right and morally wrong will go about and tack it the way that they do. We need to understand all of this. And we need to understand how dangerous it is. I like what E.V. Hill said on Friday night when we're talking about people in authority and people in leadership when he said this, whether these people are elected or selected, we need to vote them out of office. And we need to replace them with men and women with a high view of Scripture. And I say amen. And I say that's the responsibility of all of God's people. We need to understand you cannot attack things dealing with the symptoms only. You cannot mock God. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he reaps. If God says it's wrong, there's nothing that we can do. There's no legislation that we can pass. There's not enough contraceptives we can hand out. There's nothing you're going to change. It's a moral absolute of God. We're foolish. We're banging our head against the wall. And we sit there as God's people and as God's people as parents sometimes. And we advocate the same sexual immorality that the world does. And we say, if they're going to do it, well, we might as well buy them contraceptives. If they're going to do it, we might as well teach them how to be safe. If they're going to do it, we'll let them come in our house and spend the night together here rather than somewhere else because they're going to do it. What in the world is going on? I know what's going on. We don't have a high view of Scripture anymore. That's what's going on. Let me ask you a question. The condom argument, is it valid? Are condoms the answer to the problems that our nation is facing? That's, the, that's what's promoted over and over again. I don't even read all this stuff, and i got so much good stuff to read. But I'm not going to read it all. There's so much of it, and it's so much garbage. Condoms. Advertisements. They're playing volleyball with blown-up condoms. What, are they going to have little kids in third grade paying twiddly wings with birth control pills? Is that what's next? What's next? Safe sex. Well, then they find out the only real safe sex is abstinence. So now what do they call it? Safer sex. Maybe you saw the May 19, 1992 USA Today article about the progressive Colorado school where they began handing out condoms three years ago. Since then, quote, the birth rate has soared to 31% above the national average. This year, they're expecting 100 births out of only 1,200 students. The administrators of this quote-unquote cutting-edge school were described as, duh, searching for explanations, duh, unquote. (laughs) How about this? Did you ever think that if you're an authority, an adult who's supposed to know better, and you hand out condoms, that maybe they think, well, you know better than them, and that it's safe? Do you ever think that handing out a kid a condom and saying, here you go, I'm not going to tell you whether you should do it or not, but hey, here you go. What kind of message is that? Well, you're an authority, you're an adult, you know better than me, I'm supposed to listen to you, I'll listen to you, and you're encouraging me to have sex. That's what we tell them. Jocelyn Elders and her stellar record in Arkansas indicate similar results. 
the teenage birth rate in Arkansas jumped from fourth in the nation to second in her tenure in office. Teens contracted syphilis rose 130% while she was in office. 150% rose in HIV. And amazingly, for five consecutive years before she was appointed as the chief health official for the state of Arkansas, teenage pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases were on a steady decline. Something was working before she got there, and she had a better idea. You know what they say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, she thought she could fix it. And you know what's amazing? She increased federal funding from $67 million in 1987 to $150 million in 1993. What other industry, what other business would permit such nonsense considering what the end results were? What are the results? Teen pregnancy is up. Disease is up. Hey, then I think you're going about it in the right direction. Let's give you some more money. That's the answer to everything. What's wrong with safe or safer sex messages? Simple. These messages are in direct opposition to the clearly taught morals for sexual behavior that are taught in the Word of God. Safe sex messages are man's feeble attempt to rebel against the clear direction of God. And God is not mocked by any of it. Don't be deceived. You know what? I am convinced more and more every day that if we do not have a high view of Scripture, that if we do not take heed to the Word of God, then we are doomed. Because God's ways are not man's ways. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. As higher as the heaven is from the earth, God says, so are my thoughts higher than you. And if we do not have a high view of Scripture, then we are doomed. I want to share something personal because it goes in light with everything that's going on around us as a church. A little over 12 years ago, Linda and I were looking for a church to get involved with, to bring our family to. And we had heard of Calvary Church. It had a reputation. The pastor, Samswick, that was here before God called him home was a man committed to the Word of God. When we came, it was in an interim period of time, much like we're going through now, where the church was in search of a full-time, it uh, was in church of a senior pastor. We heard men stand at this very pulpit that I find myself standing at today. Men like Dr. David Jeremiah, who held a very high view of Scripture and continues to to this day. In the same place right here, Dr. J. Vernon McGee stood and preached the Word of God. What a humbling experience it is to be able to stand in the same place and to share with you what I'm sharing. When Dr. Hawking, when Pastor Hawking came, Pastor Hawking had a high view of Scripture. In one of our earlier meetings together, I asked him basically, can you give me some help or tools on how to become a, an effective teacher of the Word of God? He said, well, you know, this is typical stuff. Well, you know, you, you need to have a good Bible dictionary. You need to have a good concordance. You need to have an encyclopedia. You need to have all these reference materials. Those, those are all important. Those are good. Those will come in handy. He said, but Chuck, you know what? If you really want to be a teacher of the Word of God, you know what you need to do? You need to read the Word of God. You need to study the Word of God. You need to dig into the Word of God. You need to fall in love with the Word of God. Ezra 7.10 became a very fa a, a favorite verse of mine. It says that Ezra set his heart, dedicated himself to study the Word of God, to live it, and then to teach it. And that's meant a lot to me since that conversation. 
We came here because the motto was we preach the Bible. The whole Bible and nothing but the Bible. The only way to defeat Satan's lies, the only way to defeat the lies and the deception of the society in which we find ourselves living today is to continue to have a high view of Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 4, It is written, It is written, Thus saith the Lord, Have you not read? Have you not heard? It is written. The measurement for success for church or churches in the culture in which we live has been diluted to somehow or another filling seats or trying to make things user-friendly, trying to be seeker-sensitive, and all these words that are used to try to define what the church of God is. And we go into the culture in which we live, and we say, what do we need to do at our church? What do we need to change at our church so that you'll come to our church? What do you want? What are you looking for? And we go and we knock on doors in the neighborhood. Do you go to church? No, I don't. Why not? Because you teach that we should give money. Well, let's not teach giving. Let's not teach tithing because it offends people. Let's just charge five bucks a head to get in. No, seriously. Let's just charge admission because that's the direction that the church in America is going. Let's charge admission. Then we can measure success by the number of people that sit in the seats as if it's a concert or if it's a theater or if it's some type of sporting event. That's how we'll measure whether we're successful as the church of God. Acts chapter 2 says that, you know what? When the word of God was preached, lives were changed. And then those people were added to the church. Because the word of God was taught. Because the word of God was preached. Because we as a church are to lead our society. We are not to follow the philosophies and the methodology and the psychology of the world that we live in. The marketing strategies of how can we get people to come to church? You know how? Preach the word of God. Be faithful to the word of God. Teach the word of God. That's how. We change the society and the culture in which we live because it's the Word of God that's a lamp under our feet and a light into our path. That's why we came to this church. And that's why when we are deciding who will lead this church, that the only criteria that we need to take into consideration, and I'm sick of the gossip, I'm sick of the rumors, I'm sick of all of it, and it's given me a headache. And the only way you can get away from all of it is this. That we need to become more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica, the Berean church. They sat and they examined the scripture and they listened to Paul and he wasn't above scrutiny. And they listened to what he said. And you know what? They examined it against the word of God to find out if what he was teaching and preaching was the word of God. And no disrespect to Dr. Vodder or his wife or his family, but this is not a popularity contest. And what concerns me is, what do you think? I think he's nice. What? That's not the question. This isn't a popularity contest. Well, I would hope he would be nice. I would hope that his wife would be nice, his family would be nice, and that all that would be nice. But that's not even the criteria of God for membership into the church of God. Not whether someone's nice. It's whether they've come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then they were added to the church. And then 
We're talking about leading the church. We're not talking about being one of us. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about direction. And I would hope as you go and listen, and as you pray for wisdom and discernment, that what you would do is examine the content of which he speaks. Not of whether he's boring or whether he's dynamic. Not whether he tells a joke or he doesn't tell a joke. Not whether he parts his head, hair down the middle of his head to try to please everybody. That he would open his Bible and that he would teach us from the Word of God. That's the content. That's what we look for. That's the leadership that we want. That's what sets this church apart from all the rest of the diluted institutions. And if we stop preaching the Word of God at this church, take down the sign Calvary Church of Santa Ana and put up the Calvary Feel Good Society or whatever you want to call it, whatever you want it to be, but we need to examine what the man preaches by the Word of God. And that means open your Bible, check what he says, check the overhead references, check the notes, and if you don't have time to read it yourself, uh, then, then you make time to read it. How can you find out whether somebody is accurately giving you a description of the Word of God if you don't read it and check it? Examine the Scripture. God, help us to understand that this is very important. This is a crucial crossroad to to what what direction this church goes in the future. And I don't care if you like him or not like him. What do you think of him? I just get so sad that I hear that. He's a nice guy. He tells jokes. I think he's dry. I don't think he has much personality. (laughs) Who cares? Does he teach the word of God? Measure the content for what it is. Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. You see, Scripture commands us to flee immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Paul wrote that it's the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Solomon wrote that sexual intercourse should be kept within the bounds of marriage. Read Proverbs 3, verses 5, Proverbs 5, verses 3 through 20. He warned that our own iniquities will capture the wicked, to keep away from the adulteress. Don't go near the door of her house. The biblical view of marriage is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 and 33. The Bible fully condemns marriage, sex outside of marriage. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I think it's really important to say this too. I would hope that anyone that may have a desire to take offense at anything that I've said We'll examine it within the entire context and not pull out a statement to try to say something that I didn't say, nor that I intended to say. You see, by doing that, we are just as guilty as when we take a verse out of the Bible, take it out of context, and try to get it to say something that was never intended to be said. You see, when that is done, it distorts the truth. We need to be true to the text. That's why it's also so important to preach and teach the Bible the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And in closing, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1, and we'll use this to close. <clears throat> but realize this, 
that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will hold to a form of godliness, although they will have denied its power, and we are to avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with, in, with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And just as Jan, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. What he's saying is we've got to be very careful and discerning that there will be people who try to distort the word of God, who will oppose the truth of the word of God for their own agenda, their own philosophy, and we need to be very careful about this. He says they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. Over a period of time, the truth begins to display itself, as also that of those two can be. But see, he's saying, but God's people are different. And he's talking to Timothy, and Paul writes, but you followed my teaching conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. You see, folks, all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, teaching to teach us what is right, for reproof to teach us what is not right. And he goes on, and he says, not only that, but for correction, how to get right. For training in righteousness, how to stay right before God. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The only way that you and I will ever discern truth from error is by handling correctly the Word of God. The Word of God. How can a young man make his way pure before God? By taking heed to the Word of God. It is my prayer that each of us will examine the scripture, will examine the content of the messages that we hear, we will pray for wisdom and discernment, and we will trust God that he will lead us to a conclusion that will be honoring to God and also honoring to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for this opportunity, as always, to get together and to look into your word, to be able to discern truth from error, to know right from wrong, to be able to deal with all the rumors and gossip and popularity contests and all those things, but to also understand what a tremendous accountability that you hold each one of us to as it comes to examining the Word of God. God, help us to listen with ears that will be pleasing to you, to listen to the content, to listen to the message, to determine whether it's biblical. God, help us to be men and women who are not ashamed of the word of God, who handle accurately the word of truth, 
who, though we need to be sensitive and compassionate for people who are around us, we should never be embarrassed to open our Bible in front of someone. We should never be embarrassed to show them what we believe and why and point to the passages and the verses and why. God help us to never become a church that tells people and encourages them not to bring their Bible to church. God help us to understand that it's the only thing that we have to stand upon. For without it, we are no different than any other organization on the face of the earth. Man-made institutions that lack the power of God. For you say that the word of God, your word, is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God. God, you are eternal. The souls of men and women is eternal. And the word of God is eternal. And you tell us that your word, when it's preached, will not come back empty. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.